The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to be refreshed by the study of your word. That your word is like streams of living water, streams of water in the desert, and it refreshes our souls. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, we pray that we might be able to focus, concentrate, put aside the cares, worries, and concerns of today and the worries and anxieties about tomorrow, and that we can just focus on what you are doing in history and in our own lives and the truths that you have for us from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This afternoon I got a chance to talk to Jim Myers by telephone. And Jim wanted me to express my grati- his gratitude to us for all the uh, goodies that we sent over there. He said, he said, your people are just too good to me. You're not. Nothing is too good for missionaries and pastors. So I am pleased to hear those responses. That just shows uh, an indication of the grace orientation of any congregation, a care and concern for missionaries and for pastors and what's going on in their lives. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, tracking the development of Joseph as God prepares him for a unique role of leadership as a non-native Egyptian in the second highest position in Egypt. And he's using that, of course, to provide a special place of safety and security to bring the rest of the family out of the promised land into Egypt in order to provide them with a uh, safe place for development for about 400 years. Now, we have to keep that in mind. That's, that's the large picture uh, of this section is how God is bringing Israel and the descendants of Jacob, the, the 12 or 11 brothers, the rest of the family, out of this pagan environment up in, up in Cana. And God brings them down to Egypt because they have become so complacent spiritually. They have compromised so much. They don't care about spiritual things. They're intermarrying with the Canaanites, and it is diluting the, and it threatens to dilute the seed, the descendants of Abraham. And so God has a special plan that fits under the framework of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good. God has a broader plan than what we can see. And we look at the macro plan of God in this section, and then we can look within a smaller section, the plan of God in the use of Joseph to bring that about. And so Joseph, of course, doesn't see the big picture. We see it. But just like in our own lives, Joseph just looks around at the fact that he's in prison. He's not where he wants to be. He's not there because he did anything wrong. He's there because he's basically framed by Potiphar's wife who attempted to seduce him. He refused to be seduced and spurned her advances She became angry and accused him of rape, and so he is put in prison. And he's been in prison now for almost three years, according to the first verse of chapter 41. 
We read there in the first part of the verse, and it came to pass at the end of two full years. So he's been in, in prison now for almost three years, and God is teaching him. God has him in his training school to prepare him for his future role of leadership. Now, what are the qualities that you want to have in a good leader? Well, one quality you need to have in a good leader is humility, genuine humility, teachability, where they can learn. A leader who becomes so convinced of his own rectitude, but is unwilling to take correction either from his superiors or from his subordinates when he is wrong, unwilling to have the objectivity to look at his own decisions and his own uh, actions, it cannot be a good leader. Biblically speaking, a good leader has to have genuine humility. When we look at the Gospels, a genuine leader has a servant's heart. He is one who is to serve, not someone who is to be served. Second, a key quality is trust in God. He has to be willing to rest and relax in the provision of God. He has to mature in the faith rest drill. Third, he has to be oriented to grace. Because there are many times when you are a leader that you will be attacked, that you will be insulted, that you will be assaulted, and yet you have to develop a thick skin and you have to treat people not as they deserve to be treated, but out of grace and a kindness towards them, even though they don't deserve that. You also have to be doctrinally oriented, specifically oriented to the plan and the purposes of God. Doctrine provides that framework for understanding history and understanding where things are going. You have to have a love for God. You have to have a love for people. And you have to focus on on who God is. And he, you, your thoughts need to be occupied with Him. Of course, if you've listened to those various things that I've just outlined, you ought to be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like those problem-solving devices, those spiritual skills that we need to be developing. And that's exactly right, because those are the qualities that develop the character of a positive leader. And that's what we see developing in Joseph. I would just love to be a fly on the wall in that prison and see the kinds of things that he's going through. Now, let me remind you a little bit about what's been happening with with Joseph. After he, after he was arrested and put in prison, and I told you last week that he's put in to the Pharaoh's Prison. So this, he's not out with the masses. This isn't the worst prison in Egypt. This is, has to do primarily with the, the prison for the aristocracy. And so this is like Club Fed, except it, maybe it's Club, the original Club Med, since it's right there off the Mediterranean. Oh well. Anyway, so he's put there and immediately God grants him grace in the eyes of the uh, prison authorities, and they elevate him to what we would call a trustee position. He's put in authority over things, and in chapter 39, verse 22, we read that the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hands all the prisoners who were in prison. So he's not only had leadership development as the chief slave of Potiphar, but now he is elevated to basically run and administer the prison. He gets lots of opportunities to interact with people, to organize things, to make sure that problems get solved, logistical issues get solved, personal conflicts get resolved, all the different things that would be involved in that. God is teaching him. God has him in a place where he has to learn these things. And that, of course, one of them is patience to wait upon the Lord. And he may have gotten impatient. The text really doesn't make a point of that. But when he, has, um, when he interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the baker, and he tells the cupbearer that when you go back into Pharaoh's court and he restores you to power, remember me. Remind the Pharaoh that I'm here unjustly. Let me out. That may or may not be Joseph trying to solve the problem on his own. As I said, the text doesn't really indicate that. But he wants out, and God doesn't let him out. Many times we find ourselves in that same position where we want things to hurry up and resolve, and God says, no, the issue isn't getting through the process. The issue is how you go through the process. 
And it may take three years in some tests. It may take five years, ten years, fifteen years, or even longer. But that test, that adversity, is the school that God is taking you through. It is God, God's personally designed, personally tailored adversity for you because God knows your soul. He knows your sin nature. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. And He's just brought that right into your life because He knows that that's what you need in order to challenge you the most to bring you to spiritual maturity. And that's what's going on with, with Joseph. So he's in leadership training. And we read that it came to pass at the end of two years that the Pharaoh had a dream. Now, we don't know who this Pharaoh is, and there's a lot of discussion about trying to identify the time frame of Joseph. At some time, I believe, in the 18th century B.C., the 1700s. Now, if you follow... If you follow traditional Egyptian chronology, this would be in what's called the Middle Kingdom, probably the 12th dynasty. But I don't follow traditional Egyptian chronology. There's a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is that it just doesn't match with a conservative biblical view of creation and the timing of the flood. And we've gone through some of those issues before, back when we were in Genesis dealing with the uh, the genealogies and the so-called, is there a gap in the genealogy and some of those other other issues back around Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So we can't go to the secular pattern because there are, there are problems, there are debates even in the last 15 years. Uh, one particular Egyptologist, he's an evangelical by the name of Kenneth Kitchen, who's done as much work as anybody on some of these issues, and he is an evangelical, as I said. He's a Bible believer. Now, we would differ with him because he takes, a, he takes what's called a, a late date for the Exodus, and that means he puts the Exodus into the uh, 1200s, not the 1400s, into the 1200s during the time of Ramses the second, that's usually a liberal position. And he's a Brit. British evangelicals tend to be closer to what we would identify as liberals than, than American uh, evangelicals. And most biblical conservatives in America take the view that the biblical numbers are correct. And therefore, when we know with pretty, pretty good confidence that when Solomon dedicated the temple... According to 1 Kings 6.1, it was sometime around pretty close to 966 B.C. And it was some uh, 400 years or 430 years earlier or so that uh, the text says that, uh, that the Exodus occurred. So you just add or 480 years, I forget the exact number, but you just add the numbers together and you come up with 14 1446 B.C. as a biblically sound date for the for the Exodus. Well, we know all that, but we don't know who who the pharaohs were. And anyway, I was mentioning Kitchen. Kitchen comes along and says that there's at least 50 years that's been artificially inserted into Egyptian chronology. Well, most of you are probably taught that something along the lines that, according to traditional Egyptian chronology, the Thutmose. The third was the Pharaoh of the Oppression, and Minotep the fourth was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But if there's an artificial 50 years in there somewhere, then they're, they're not even born yet, or they're just children at the time of the, uh, of the Exodus. Hatshepsut is just a, a young girl at the time of the Exodus. So don't ever make the mistake of trying to identify, put a name to any of those biblical uh, characters. All the Bible ever says is Pharaoh, daughter of Pharaoh. That's as close as you get. And there's, the Bible never identifies them. Why didn't the Bible put a name to these people? Well, it's probably because the Pharaoh was viewed as, as a deity. And so he was always referred to by his title and not by his name. In the same sense that out of respect, the Jews didn't use the name never pronounced the name of God. So the scriptures just refer to the leader of Egypt as the king of Egypt or or simply as Pharaoh, and it's up to Egyptologists to try to figure out who it was. What's interesting is among 
conservative Bible-believing Egyptologist, and there are several out there, it's hard to find any two or three of them that agree on the same possible Pharaoh. So it's an interesting study, but it's it's not one that um, that gives us a whole lot of certainty, primarily because in these intermediate periods between the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom, there are a lot of Pharaohs that are unidentified. We just don't know who succeeded whom. And there were a number of Pharaohs that had relatively short reigns of two years or five years or ten years. And so over a period of, remember, Moses lived 120 years. So over his lifetime, there could possibly have been you know, 12 or 15 different, different rulers in Egypt if it was during one of those intermediate periods. So don't get too caught up in trying to identify uh, who these pharaohs are. Well, verse 1 says it was at the end of these two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, before we get there, I want to stop and look at what's going on in Joseph's life. Joseph was sold into slavery sometime around 17 or 18 years of age. He spent uh, about 10 years or so as uh, a slave to Potiphar and as his servant before he is arrested and thrown in prison. Now he spends about three or four years total in prison. So he's about 30, 31, somewhere in there when he's finally released from prison. And he's been going through this training session. And training involves suffering and adversity. So let's review the doctrine of suffering for blessing because that's what it is. And just think about that. Your life's not any different from from Joseph. You've gone through times, whether it's health suffering, whether it's financial suffering, whether it has to do with uh, any number of different things that can be going on in your life. You can go through lots of different adversity, and it may go on for a long time, and you're sitting in the middle of it thinking, well, what's going on? Why, Why doesn't God seem to answer my prayers or remember me, and that's exactly where Joseph was. Now, what Joseph did with his mental attitude was rather than trying to figure out why God wasn't letting him out, he was saying, okay, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, God's put me here, God's given me a responsibility, and it's my job to exercise and carry out that responsibilities to the best of my ability to his glory, and even if that just involves a little bit, I'm going to do it to the fullest, And then recognizing a principle that Jesus taught, if I'm faithful in a little, perhaps God will eventually uh, make me faithful in much. So our first principle in in the doctrine of suffering for blessing is to realize and remember that God's training program utilizes adversity to teach us to utilize the ten stress busters or problem-solving devices. And as we've studied before, these are spiritual skills that we have to develop, that we have to hone through practice and practice and more practice. Remember, it's not practice that makes perfect. Because if you're practicing it wrong, it's not going to be perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So you just have to practice it perfectly over and over again until it gets to be second nature to you, that you confess your sins, that you respond by claiming that promise, remembering to cast your cares upon Him, to remember to to fear not, to wait upon the Lord, all those different principles and promises that we learn. Second, as we learn to use those skills, they enable us to stay in fellowship. How do we get out of fellowship? Because we start trying to solve the problem on our own with our sin nature. We bounce right out of fellowship. So what keeps us in fellowship is utilizing those stress busters, those problem-solving devices. Of course, when we fail and we try to handle it through uh, anger or through mental attitude sins, through uh, sins of the tongue, then immediately we're out of fellowship and we have to use confession as the first skill to get back in fellowship so that we can start uh, growing, applying, moving forward in the spiritual life. The spiritual skills help us to stay in fellowship so that we can learn to walk by the Spirit and abide in Christ. In the Old Testament, they don't have the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They just have the promises of God. So the focus for, for, for Joseph is to remember the promise of God. Of course, a big promise for him is the Abrahamic covenant, that God promised land, seed, and blessing. And he knew that he's in the line of the seed, and he's had a dream that God has given him, two dreams, where God is going to... 
put him in a position where his brothers and his father bow down to him. So he knows this. This is divine revelation to him, and he can relax, and he has to learn to trust that, even though looking at those dungeon walls isn't something that that, uh, engenders a whole lot of confidence in him. He can't put his eyes on his circumstances. He has to put his eyes on the Lord. Third, we've learned that each skill operates within the environment of testing. You can't learn it just in the classroom. You can't learn it just by coming to Bible class and taking notes and getting your notebook filled up with notes. You learn it by going out and working every day, being involved in relationships, whether it's marriage or friendships or work relationships, dealing with the adversities of life and applying doctrine when you get there. Now, as we do that, we have the option of either relying on human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. Every time we opt for human viewpoint to solve problems, then what we do is we end up, we stop walking by the Spirit, we're out of fellowship, sin nature takes over, and we're either operating with human good or we're operating on, on sins. Now, the fourth thing is, why do we suffer? People always want to know, why do I suffer? Why am I going through this? It's amazing how soon as people hit any kind of difficulty, the first thing they want to do is blame God. The first thing they want to do is, why is God letting this happen to me? We get so self-absorbed so quickly. And we just focus on, why me, Lord? I just want everything to go smoothly. Just leave me alone. Let me just kind of move through life very calmly. And uh, it doesn't work that way. So we suffer for three basic reasons. First of all, we suffer because we all live in a fallen world. It's not the world God created. It's not even once removed from the world God created. God created the world perfect, and in that perfect world, in that perfect environment, He placed placed Adam and Eve. But then they disobeyed God, and the curse came, and the curse took us from perfect environment to one step removed from perfect environment. And then man did evil in his heart continuously, according to Genesis chapter 6, and God had to judge the world again with the Noahic flood. And now it's even worse than it was before. So we're two steps removed from perfect environment. So we live in a fallen world where everything is corrupted by the fall, and the, the uh, second law of thermodynamics is active every single day. That means that everything is moves automatically from a state of organization and usability to a state of disorganization and entropy. That means you get older. That means you get heavier. That means your eyesight goes. That means all kinds of things. Everything just starts falling apart. And that's because we live in a fallen world. Secondly, we live with fallen creatures. We work with people who have sin natures who are operating on all the arrogant skills. And and many of them have honed those arrogant skills to absolute perfection and they just roll all over some other people maybe you day in and day out we live with spouses who are fallen we live with children that are fallen and parents that are fallen and everybody around us is a dirty rotten totally depraved corrupt sinner except us no we're all that way and and so we have to deal with we it's funny we always want the uh, god to judge the other person and deal with us in grace but we have to learn to deal with everybody in grace everybody in grace because they're no better we're no better than they are so we live in a fallen world we live with fallen creatures and we all suffer because of our bad decisions and we suffer because of their bad decisions there's all kinds of people who Depend, irrelevant of what your politics are, can look at the political parties in power and say, you idiots, why didn't you do it this way? It's a better way. We're smarter. And you may be right. But guess what? They made bad decisions and you suffer for them. And we suffer for a lot of bad decisions based on what you're the president. You work for a big corporation. The leadership makes bad decisions and you lose your job. You work for Enron. You work hard. You're you're have integrity and yet leadership doesn't and so you suffer you live in a country that's going through divine discipline they, other people make bad decisions and you suffer so we're associated with fallen fallen creatures and as a result 
we often suffer, whether it's directly from our bad decisions or indirectly from someone else's bad decisions. And then we have our own fallen sin nature. The Bible says that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. That means we're all equally corrupt. That doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It means that every dimension of every person has been corrupted by sin. And we operate from the womb on that, those arrogant skills from the sin nature. It is the just as any iron filing is immediately attracted to, uh, to a magnet. So from the first breath, that young, sweet little infant has a sin nature that is just attracted to sin and to arrogance and to self-absorption. And that's why parents have to train that child and discipline that child to control the uh, strivings of that, that particular sin nature. Now, of these three reasons for suffering, living in a fallen world, living with fallen creatures, and uh, living with our own sinful nature, the first two involve undeserved suffering. Now, when we live in a fallen world, we may be right de- making right decisions, but we live in a fallen environment, so we go through undeserved, unjust suffering. If we're living in association with people who, through marriage or through work or whatever it may be, and they make bad decisions and we make good decisions, we still suffer uh, by association. That's why we have undeserved suffering. Then the third, though, involves direct suffering, and that is deserved suffering. The only way to handle these is through these skills that God gives us. And what's so great about these spiritual skills is rather than succumbing to, to the stress and the fragmentation that occurs inside of our soul when we're operating on carnality and the sin nature, and it takes a long time to really see the consequences of that. Sin isn't the, the kind of thing that if you commit some sin that God's going to whack you right away like, like if you put your hand on a hot stove, you immediately uh, feel the results of that negative decision. You can start making negative decisions in, in certain areas of your life, in your mental attitude or in your uh, just the things that you do, how you do things, and, and nothing bad happens. You think, wow, I guess this isn't so bad. God's not going to whack me. And you just continue in those patterns year after year, week after, or week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and all of a sudden when you're in your 50s or in your 60s, it all comes home to roost because you weren't obeying the Word of God, and all of that arrogance piles up, and ultimately there is uh, justice as a man uh, sows, so will he also reap. So this is the basis for suffering. Now, then bring, that was just fourth, the fourth point, which is reasons for suffering. Fifth point is the purposes. God's purposes for both deserved and undeserved suffering. And there are uh, two reasons or two purposes for deserved suffering. First of all, the, the purposes or the reasons have to do with, the, they're the, A, the natural consequences of our own sins or bad decisions, Hosea 8.7, Galatians 6.7, and then divine discipline, which is intensified. See, you can go out and make bad decisions, and then there are uh, natural consequences. You decide not to report all of your income to the IRS. The IRS finds out, and you get fined or you get sent to jail. And that's just the natural consequences of disobeying the law. But God may decide to intensify that suffering, and that's divine discipline. And so it has uh, other, other consequences, unintended consequences in your life that really create havoc. And that's where the divine discipline comes in, is God's trying to get your attention to get you back in fellowship and right with Him. When it comes to undeserved suffering... Undeserved suffering can have four different purposes. First of all, it can serve as a wake-up call to evangelism for somebody. For the unbeliever, if they go through undeserved suffering, it may cause it may be God's way of getting their attention to, on realizing that they can't handle life and they need to rely on something greater than them. It forces unbelievers to face their own immortality, to ask questions about the meaning and purpose of life. And eventually, God can use that to bring them uh, to salvation. 
For the believer, undeserved suffering is related to spiritual growth. We go through undeserved suffering, and we have the opportunity to respond by using the the spiritual skills, these problem-solving devices, and that trains us so that we implement God's command in our life and we begin to grow and mature uh, spiritually. A third reason, so the second reason has to do with spiritual growth. The third reason is it's a witness to others. We, how we handle the crisis in our life is a testimony to the angels and it's a testimony to other believers. We never know who's watching. And we know that the angels are always watching. So they see us flub up and they see us do well. And then, fourth, it's an encouragement to others. They not only learn, but they're encouraged and strengthened by watching our, our example. So I've got some charts here I put together to try to help us understand this. Here's the adversity, and for Joseph, the adversity is prison. Now, he's in prison, and he can focus on all the negative consequences of being in prison. It's unfair. It's unjust. He can become self-absorbed, and and he can become bitter and resentful about the fact that he didn't have anything. He was doing everything right. God put me in prison. Why didn't he care? I should be out of prison. He could focus on that. And then he's got to deal with all these other lovely people that are in prison. And we all know that that the, the kind of people that are also in that prison with him we're not the greatest people, so he has to deal with that, and then he's put in charge of them, and there may have been some resentment and hostility about the very fact that he was in authority over them. So there would be people testing, and then just the, the system testing of being in prison that he has to deal with, that he can't get out, he doesn't have freedom, and all these other things. And then, he, of course, health issues would arise in prison because of diet and food and all these other other factors may affect things, finances, what's he going to do for money. Uh, then there would be the loss of freedom because he couldn't get up and leave whenever he wanted to. So it's not just a matter of prison. You break it down, there's all kinds of collateral consequences to his being in prison. Now, just like his being in prison, we have a choice to make every day as to how we're going to face that. That's the mental attitude necessary to face adversity. It demands mental toughness. You can't just relax and just kind of go with the flow. You have to be mentally tough about doctrine. And so you can respond with positive volition and exhibit trust toward God. Exercise the faith rest drill. And remember, I don't know it all. God does. So I just have to relax and trust that he knows what's best. And that leads us to operate within divine viewpoint. And we utilize the ten uh, problem-solving devices or ten stress busters. If you don't trust God then the result is you operate on human viewpoint for a framework. You develop all kinds of self-protective strategies to make life work. You try to intimidate people. You use anger, uh, resentment, maybe sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, uh, things like that. All of this, of course, comes out of your sin, sin nature. That leads then to understanding the difference between direct testing and indirect testing. Direct testing is deserved suffering, and indirect testing should be undeserved suffering. That second category should be undeserved suffering. Direct testing, as I've just pointed out, is a result of our own sinful choices and actions. We make foolish choices based on human viewpoint and operate on human good, and the result, and then the third is divine discipline. Those are the three areas of deserved suffering, and that's suffering for discipline. Indirect testing comes because we live in Satan's world. We have suffering by association with fallen creatures. There's suffering for spiritual growth. And there's suffering for evidence, evidence towards angels, unbelievers, and believers. And that is suffering for blessing. Now, when you are going through uh, deserved suffering, when you confess your sins and get back in fellowship, you can convert suffering for discipline to suffering for blessing. And that's what's going on with, with Joseph. All of this suffering he's going through is suffering for blessing. Now, I'm in Genesis 41. He's going through suffering for blessing. When I use the word blessing, what should come to your mind? Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. 
Because Joseph is going to be a blessing to not only his own family, which is the forefathers of patriarchs of the Jews, but he's going to be a blessing to Egypt. Egypt in the ancient world was like, was like Ukraine in much of the modern world. It was a breadbasket of the world. It was a breadbasket of the Roman Empire during the time of the Roman Empire. Lots changed since then. Um, uh, it's like Kansas or the Midwest in America. It, it provide, provided wheat for, for the world and corn, and yet there's going to be this incredible famine that is going to impact the whole world because Egypt couldn't meet the need anymore. And yet God is going to work through that to, as part of that fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to provide blessing uh, for the whole world. I'm going to skip through this. Okay, skip through that too. I put these slides in there and I'm not going to go there. Okay, so let's get into what's happening in the text. It came to the pass at the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. So from 1b down through 8, we have the story of the dreams themselves. The details of these dreams are going to be repeated again when Pharaoh describes the dreams to Joseph from verse 17 down through 24. So there's a certain amount of repetition in the text in order to make sure we understand what happens in the dream. So it starts off he, in verse uh, 1b. He's, he's, the Pharaoh standing by the river. And suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows. Now New King James says they were fine looking and fat. And they fed in the meadow. Actually, what we, we the New American Standard says that they were sleek and fat. Uh, the Hebrew word is yafeh, which means lovely or beautiful. Often, it's applied to a beautiful woman. And when it's applied to an animal, of course, like this is being from Texas. This was one beefy cow. I mean, it was a good-looking cow. It was going to provide a lot of steaks on the hoof. He's looking at one fine fine cow that's going to be good for eating. So it's, he's described as fine looking and uh, fat. This is the Hebrew word. I do not know what has happened to the text here. Left out half the word. Bari, meaning fat or healthy. So this is a fine looking, beefy be, these are fine-looking, beefy cattle coming up out of the water. And then, in contrast, these seven that come out are followed by seven skinny cows. And they're just, they're just skin and bones. And they come out, and they're gaunt, and they're described as ugly and gaunt. They're, uh, technically, the, the word rot means bad. So they're just skin and bones, just a bag of bones. That first description is the Hebrew word rot, meaning bad or evil frequently. They doesn't have that moral connotation here, but they just look they just look nasty as they come out of, up out of the out of the water. And then they are also uh dach, they're gaunt, fine. They're they're just uh, uh I find in the sense of thin, narrow, uh dwarfish or low. They're just they're just just a bag of bones. It's it's intensified there. And so he sees these horrible cows, and the ugly and gaunt cows eat up the seven fine-looking, good-looking, fat, beefy uh, cows. Then he wakes up, and then he dreams a se- goes back to sleep, dreams a second time, and he sees seven heads of grain come up on one stalk, plump and good. And so we have the similar vocabulary here, the plump and good ears of corn, uh, come up that it, the terms that are used indicate they're plump, they're full. There's there's a kernel of corn in every row, and it's it's ripe, it's it's ready to eat. You, you've been to the store where you pick up corn and you start peeling back the husk, and you just see that some of the rows are missing, and and uh, there's holes in various places, and it's skinny, and it's it doesn't look very appetizing. But these are fat, and they're they're full of health. When we moved up to Connecticut. I'd never had good corn like they have up there. I mean, that, that, that northern corn, that northern climate produces some incredible, incredible corn. 
And this, 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 that's what he sees here is these seven ripe ears of just fat, healthy, uh, ripe, ready to go. And then up comes seven thin and scorched, thin and blighted ears of corn. The same word dock is used and repeated again to indicate that, that it just, it just, it's skinny. It's, it's, it's thin in the sense that there's nothing there. And then in verse seven, we read the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. And Pharaoh awoke and says, indeed, it, it was a dream. It was so real to him that when he woke up, you've had dreams like that, you're not sure whether it was, it was live or Memorex. And for him, it was just a dream. It wasn't, it wasn't live, and, but it bothered him. And we're told in verse 8, it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was his spirit was troubled. And the Hebrew word there for troubled is pa'am, P-A-A-M. And it means to be stirred up, to be troubled, to be anxious, to be unsettled in your spirit. You're just bothered all day. He didn't understand what the dreams meant, but he had this sense of foreboding, this overwhelming sense that, that whatever they meant, it, it wasn't good and that something needed to be done. So he calls in the the uh, magicians, these are the diviner priests. And in fact, the word that's used here in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, is the word hartem, which is actually an Egyptian loan word. There are a number of Egyptian words in this section of Genesis. Now, why is that important? It's important because the Bible makes the claim that these are historical events that happened in a specific time in a specific place. This isn't legend. And when you come across the fact that this is a story about Joseph living in Egypt and, and the other brothers eventually coming down to Egypt, you would suspect that you might run across some Egyptian vocabulary if it's legitimate. And again and again, we find in this section of Genesis and in, Hebrew, and in, uh, excuse me, in Exodus a certain number of Egyptian words, Egyptian-based words that are, are then taken into and absorbed into uh, Hebrew vocabulary. In the ancient world, they had various guilds of magicians. These were men who practiced uh, demonism. Uh, they were involved with fortune-telling. They're involved with necromancy. They're involved with all kinds of divination, trying to foretell the future. And they, especially in Egypt, they came up with a, a complex variety of ways and to, to uh, interpret dreams. And they had had books that listed all the different types of things that someone might dream about and the symbols and what they meant. And yet none of them could, could interpret uh, these dreams, could explain uh, what they meant. And we're told at the end of verse 8 that no one could interpret them for Pharaoh. And about that time, the, the chief butler, remember, he's, he's really, that should be translated, the cupbearer. He is in a high position. He would be always present with, with the Pharaoh. He was a trusted, the most trusted of all the servants. And at this time, he remembers. I think it's coincidence. It's like God has a plan. So God, I believe, caused him to remember Joseph, and he says, and he sparked his memory, says, well, yeah, I remember I had a dream, and there was this guy in prison, and he told me exactly what would happen, and it came to pass. And so he reminds Pharaoh of this, that when Pharaoh was angry with him and put me in jail, I had a dream one night, and there was this, this man in the prison who, who not only interpreted my dream, but the dream of the baker, and he got everything right, and it came to pass exactly as he had, had described him. So... The Pharaoh then sent for Joseph in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And now when we come to understand this particular passage, it, it fits the context because it says that he shaved and changed his clothes, not because he was down in the pit of some dark dungeon and he hadn't had a bath for a couple of years and he hadn't shaved and his beard was down to his waist and his hair was long. Remember, he's been placed over all the prisoners. He's in He's in club fed here uh, with, with the Pharaoh. He would recognize, though, that if he's going in the presence of an Egyptian, he would have to be dressed in a way that was pleasing to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were 
uh, people who were, fa- especially the aristocracy, were fastidious about their cleanliness and their appearance. And they shaved their heads and they shaved their faces. They did not have beards. When you look on the uh, pictographs that you have in, in various places uh, where uh, in Egypt, and you see that there's a beard on Pharaoh, usually a long, narrow strip coming out from his chin, that was false. That was just put there. They, they were always clean-shaven, and they viewed other people as rather barbaric if they had facial hair or if the, the men had, had hair at all. So they shaved everything uh, for cleanliness. And so Joseph is very wise here because he knows he's going to get in, the, in front of the Pharaoh, and it may be his only shot. So he wants to make sure that he is, uh, presents himself in a, in a manner that is non-offensive uh, to the Pharaoh. So he s- takes the time to shave and change his clothes. Now that doesn't happen very, especially if you're shaving your head, that doesn't take, uh, uh, that takes more than just five or ten minutes. But he makes sure that he is ready and presentable because he is going into the presence of Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says to him, verse 15, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard said that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And notice, this is, this is Joseph's God orientation. He doesn't let that throw him. He says, no, no, it's not me. God is the one. And see, he's talking to who? Pharaoh. In, Egyptian, uh, in the Egyptian understanding of things, the Pharaoh was God. He was the incarnation of God. And so Joseph doesn't back off. He's very courageous but yet he is not confrontive in the way he handles this. He says to the Pharaoh, it's not in me. It's not me. I'm not the one who's doing it. God will give Pharaoh an answer. So the fact that Pharaoh didn't slap him down right away shows that Pharaoh must have been tremendously bothered by this, and he wasn't going to uh, take the opportunity to take offense at that. So he describes the dream to Joseph again down through verse 24 and then Joseph interprets the dream beginning in verse 25 and says that the dreams of the Pharaoh are the same. Both dreams pointing out the same principle just as those two dreams that he had back uh, earlier when he was at home when he was a young boy that had to do with his brothers and his parents bowing down to him reinforced one another and stated the same principle. That's what he's saying here. These two dreams are expressing the same principle, and that is that there are going to be seven years of plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt, and then there are going to be seven years of famine. Uh, This is important for Egypt because Egypt was one of the most significant grain-producing areas throughout all the ancient world, and everybody in northern Africa and in uh, the, along the Levant and on up towards Turkey relied upon Egyptian grain in order to in order to survive. There have been various mentions down through the years in Egyptian literature of famines uh, such as this. In one work, the Visions of Nefertiti an Egyptian document which dated back to almost this same period of time, there was reference to a famine of several years. There's a seven-year famine also mentioned during the time of one Djoser, which was earlier in the uh, period about uh, the same time as Abraham. So whether these are accurate records or not is disputed by by Egyptologists, but there are a number of uh, references in later Egyptian documents to famines that lasted for seven years. Now, as we look in verse verse 28, he, he says, This is the thing which, uh, uh, which God has shown Pharaoh, that God has shown Pharaoh exactly what he ha- is about to do so that he can prepare. And he says that the dreams repeated to Pharaoh in verse 32 twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. And now notice how diplomatic Joseph is. I think this is important. Sometimes as Christians we're so eager to put our position out there that we don't take the time to think about how we put our position out there. And so he's very 
gentle and wise, and that shows his maturity, that he's learned to handle himself and to present his position in a way that it is winsome. And so he says in verse 33, Now there, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And he uses two words in in the Hebrew. The word for discernment is the Hebrew word bin, B-I-N, and it means to make a decision between two options. It's somebody who is decisive, someone who can understand the issues and someone who can make good decisions decisions and cut through all of the chaff and get to the heart of a matter. And the second word for translated wise is that Hebrew word chokmah, which means someone who is skillful at constructing something or producing something. So this is someone who can get a, make good decisions and who can accomplish tasks and, and develop something of value and beauty. So he says, select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers for the land. Not only set one guy up, but now you're going to have a hierarchy underneath him. He needs, he needs uh, officers. He needs administrators underneath him in order to carry out uh, the task because it's too much for one man to fulfill all of this. So he lays out a table of organization and equipment, military would say, of how all of this should be accomplished. And, of course, this impressed Pharaoh at his ability to see exactly how this should happen. And he says to Pharaoh, he says, let Pharaoh do this and then collect one-fifth of the produce of the land in the seven plentiful years. Each year have a tax a 20% agricultural tax where you take in 20% of the produce in each of these seven years and then put that into the storage cities in order to prepare for the seven lean years. Now, this lays down an important economic principle in Scripture, and that is the importance of saving for future bad times. You never know what's going to happen around the corner. And it's important to have a regular and consistent plan of taking from what God gives you and putting it in savings in order to plan and prepare for the future, whether it's retirement or whether it's just for difficult times. You never know when you may be unemployed. You never know what may come your way, what adversity may attack you in a financial test. And so we know that those things happen, so the course of wisdom is to save a good chunk of your income on a regular and consistent basis. And even though Scripture says that we are to live one day at a time, I always find people say, yeah, pastor, but you need to live one day at a time. You shouldn't save for the future. Well, Joseph was supposed to live one day at a time, but he understood the principle of saving. Saving is a sound economic principle that is supported by the Scriptures. Of course, we should uh, we have difficulty with that living under an income tax system that uh, is inflationary and discourages uh, saving for that reason. Uh, verse 36, uh, he goes on to say, Then that food shall be a reserve for the land for those seven years of famine which shall come. So then we see the Pharaoh's response to Joseph's suggestion. The advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all of his servants. That is, his administration, his cabinet, those who were close to the Pharaoh say, this guy makes a lot of sense. He's laid out a well-developed plan. He's thought it through. And Pharaoh recognizes that the Spirit of God is on Joseph. It is apparent to this unbeliever that Joseph is blessed by God, just as it was apparent to the commander uh, over the captain of the of the jail, and just as it was apparent to Potiphar, God made it clear that Joseph had a special blessing from God. And so in verse 39, the Pharaoh says, Since God has shown this to you, there's none as discerning as wise in you as you, and so he sets him up as a vizier. He is the number two guy in Egypt. He is the, as it were, the prime minister of Egypt. Nobody had more power and authority than the Egyptian pharaoh. And trust me, in the ancient world, nobody had more power and authority than the Egyptian pharaoh. 
No totalitarian tyrant of the 20th century, no Hitler, no Stalin, no Saddam Hussein ever came close in their wildest imaginations to having the kind of power that the Egyptian pharaoh in the ancient world actually had. He was everything. He was God incarnate, and no one even came close to having that kind of power except Joseph. Joseph is second only to Pharaoh, and so he is said to ride in the second chariot in verse 43. In verse 42, Pharaoh uh, takes off his signet ring, puts it on Joseph's hand, clothes him in garments of fine linen. The Egyptians had uh, tremendous skills at producing an extremely uh, sought-after linen that was so sheer that you could almost see through it. And this is what the aristocracy wore. So he... He dresses him in the finest garments of the land, puts a gold chain, which signified his authority and position around his neck, and had him ride in the second chariot so everybody would know that he is second in command. And they cried out to bow the knee so that he goes from the prison to being prime minister, to being at the pinnacle of power, second only to the Pharaoh. Then verse 44 Uh, He says to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot. In other words, no one can do anything in the whole country without your permission. That's the kind of power God gave Joseph. And Joseph doesn't abuse that power. He shows what real integrity is like in leadership, and he doesn't abuse it. He does exactly what is right for the people, which shows his love for the people. And then he's given a wife. Pharaoh gives him his daughter. Uh, gives him a new name, which indicates his acceptance into uh, Egyptian society. Gave him a wife, Azanath, who is the daughter of Potiphar, the priest. Now that should have been interesting. We don't, not much is said about their their relationship or her spiritual condition. It's interesting to know uh, what that might have been like. The name Azanath means she belongs to the goddess goddess Nyet. Uh, and she is the daughter of the high priest in the land. So there's a lot of uh, religious condition there. Nevertheless, Joseph has two children before the famine comes. Now, how many people think, you know, something bad may happen, so I'm not going to have children? But you see, his confidence is in God, that God controls history. And so he has two children, even though he knows the famine is coming, because his his focus isn't on the details of life or the details of history, but his focus is on the God who controls history and who can provide in every situation. The fact that he has two children is a reminder of what? The Abrahamic promise of blessing and fruitfulness. And God continues to bless and prosper Joseph because, as the Scripture teaches, children are a blessing to the Lord. So he has two sons, And he names the firstborn Manasseh in verse 51, which means making forget. And so it is the idea that with Manasseh, he is forgetting that which has gone before, the slavery, the facts of what his brothers had done. And he says, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And then the second son he calls Ephraim. And Ephraim has the idea originally of fertility, of pasture land. And so this is a a reminder of the fact that God has caused him to be fruitful and productive in the land of of his enemies. So then we're told in the conclusion that the seven years of, uh, there's seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended and then the seven years of famine And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And the Pharaoh said, go to Joseph, and he will tell you exactly uh, what to do. And then not only did all the Egyptians come to him, but in the last verse, which sets us up for the coming of the family, says all the countries surrounding uh, Egypt came to Joseph for food. So God has taken him from the prison and elevated him to a position of power. And he had to prepare him first for that position of power, prepare him spiritually so that he could handle those responsibilities with integrity. 
in leadership. God does the same thing for us because we may not be destined to be the second in command in the United States or in the world, but we are being prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests. And our training ground right now is while we're here on earth. This is where we learn doctrine. There's only one thing you're going to take with you when you die, and that's the doctrine in your soul and the capacity you have, which is what you're going to take with you when you go to heaven. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by uh, these things in the life of Joseph, and we pray that you would encourage us by these things as God the Holy Spirit uses them to mature us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.